back to the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. I'm Michael Freeman, And I'm Alex Rose. Today on the podcast, we are joined with very special guest Avram Rosenzweig, fellow Canadian Jewish podcaster. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're going to be chatting with Avram about his podcast, Hat Radio, and uh, uh, his decades of experience in the Canadian Jewish community. And after that, we're going to be chatting about Holocaust Education Week. We're going to give you a little rundown of some of the events that are going on. Uh, and Alex, what's the, what's the last one we're going to be talking about? Yeah, we're changing up our final segment a little bit this week. You know, usually we ask, do Jews need to worry about, about this? Today we're asking, did Jews need to worry about Shmini Atzeret falling on the Canadian election? How did that turn out? How did Jews turn out? Or vice versa, really. Yeah. <laughs> the, the election fell on Shmini That's Atzeret. That's true. <laughs> Let's start with uh, Avram here. Avram, uh been trying to get you on this podcast for a little while now. Yeah, I've been a little bit busy. <laughs> Glad uh, it finally worked out. Yeah, me too. Well, I, I have a very uh, warm spot in my heart for the Canadian Jewish News. I've been writing here since 2001, and uh, I, I, I'm a hometown boy. I really am. I've, I just I love this newspaper, and I always have. That's great. Yeah. Um, if, if we have some listeners around the globe who don't read your work, what kind of stuff do you tend to write about for us? Well, I'm very much into slices of life uh, to a large extent. I just wrote a piece about my father and his two brothers who basically adored one another. I said that they were each other's superheroes. Uh, sometimes I'll write stories. I wrote a story called A Sunny Day in Auschwitz. Mm. And essentially, it was a purview of Auschwitz almost from outside of the fence. You can imagine little kids playing in the flower gardens outside of uh, the concentration camp looking in and those who were inside looking out. So I sort of juxtapose what that dynamic might have been like. And sometimes I'll go at certain issues, as I know that you guys do as well. Uh, if something is just jarring in my mind that's happening in the Jewish community, I like to call things out from time to time. That's always nice. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, uh, the reason why you're on the show, obviously, and one of the things that, that really introduced me, I, I'm reading your work a little bit before, but, but when I listened to Hat Radio, your podcast, uh, I was very impressed. Yeah, thanks. You have a very, uh, you have radio experience. And it, it, yeah. It, it shows in the podcast, even just in your, mm, yeah, like the way you kind of <laughs> fill the silence. Um, right. Uh, when, when, so I'm going to, uh, we're going to talk a bit about that. The, the podcast is called Hat Radio. It's a long form interview podcast, usually about an hour. Is that right? Right. So it's usually about an hour and a half. Hour and a half. Last night I interviewed Giddy Mammon who's an immigration lawyer par excellence. He's a father of triplets. He's a serious Jewish activist, and he's Moroccan, and I love the Moroccan people, especially their food and their women. Um, and I uh, well, I didn't want to stop at an hour and a half. I, it was really a rich conversation we were having, and he's a wonderful storyteller. So we went on for about an hour and 50 minutes. My shortest one was about an hour with Dr. Saul Kendall, who's 83 years old. And we were discussing some very difficult issues, as in the death of his two sons. That's why it was oh. only an hour. Yeah, you know what? He had had enough, and it was very oh. clear when your guests get tired, mm -hmm. right? We're not going to get tired for another three hours. So yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good to go. Um, so w what made you decide to start your own podcast? So I have commercial radio experience. I was on CFRB for five years. I was on 640. For five years as well, my partner Marty Gallen and I did a show which was called Marty and Avram, The Food Guys. And it was a real quirky show, and we were more focused on the people than we were on the food. Quite frankly, I knew very little about food when we first started. I was going to ask, you know, a, a yeah. food radio show, 
how do you bring the food to life? But I guess it was more about the people. No, right? but what we would do was we would we, we would have chefs come in like Michael Statlander, Michael, Mark Tewitt, big, big chefs, you know, and we would cook stuff in the studio. I remember once we worked with a native Jewish chef from George Brown College, and he made buffalo burgers, and it really, it stunk like shit, and it was awful. Mm-hmm. But, but the point is what we would do is we would talk about the smells, mm-hmm. and therefore the listeners would close their eyes ostensibly and get into what was going on within the studio and i guess they would hear the smells they would hear the smells right um why i decided to get into podcasting is because when i was doing marty and avram the food guys they were decent shows and they went on for a long time two three hours but you could never really get into an interview. And, and I'm a loquacious fellow. I talk a lot. And I also really like to listen. And I really wanted to experience what it would be like to have in-depth conversations with people. Like to really, really probe them, really get into who they are, you know, find my way into their brain, into their thought process, ask them some uh, powerful questions But what motivates them, how do you feel about and I figured, you know, this is this is what I'm going to do on the podcast. I always knew that I would get back into radio in some way. I didn't want to do commercial radio. It's a bit of a drag. But um, they don't pay well. They work you hard. And, and then at the end of your days, you're done. You're finished. It's over. It was great. A great experience on CFRB and 640. We did CHFI. and so on. But when it was done, it was done. And I wanted to be in control over what I was doing. I also wanted to create an environment which, 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 which was community which was positive. Uh, we don't speak lush and hurrah on this show. We don't speak badly about anybody or anything. And we don't deal with a lot of issues. It's more about who a person is, right? So that when, when a listener hears the show, they can sort of sit back and say, uh-huh, yeah, me too. That's how I feel too about love. Or I've gone through some very difficult uh, stuff in terms of my relationships. And when we were breaking up, I had a similar experience. So bringing people together through shared thoughts, ideas, and emotions, that was my goal. And to bring peace to the world. I mean, I, I'd love nothing more. I had a fellow who come into my house one day and put up blinds, shutters, right? And he was from Vietnam. And we started to talk. I always, do you guys do that? You, you talk to people coming to your home and help you out or what have you? No, I ignore everybody. <laughs> do you? Okay, yeah. So I used to be more like that, but not anymore. So I, I was talking to this fellow, and he told me that he was a child during the bombing of Hanoi. And he walked out of his house one morning as a little boy, and he saw bodies piled up. And I'm thinking as a Jew, you know, this is what we grew up on having to do with Holocaust education, Holocaust stories, Holocaust movies. But here's this fellow from Vietnam who was equally as traumatized as our survivors. And here he is in my house putting up blinds. The inimitable spirit of person kind, right? And I love bringing that out of people. I love finding out. You know the person who lives... I, I used to have a guy live across the so, street. Sorry, how, did, yeah. I mean, how does that story... Break in any time, by the way. Well, no, how does that story... I mean, like, do you did you leave him a good Google review? Like, how does... What's... I How wrote about him for the CJN. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So his name was like well, well, Tikna or something. I don't know. Is it on the website? Or was it, it, it was a ago? few years ago. And the essence of the article was you never know who's changing your blinds. Hmm. And especially here in Toronto or in Canada, where we have 300,000 new people coming into our country every single year from various parts of the world, you have no idea who's sitting across from you. I was going to say, I used to live on Sultana. And across the street from me lived this fellow who was an absolute curmudgeon, right? 
oh, he's angry, he's sort of pissed off, you're always too close to his driveway, you know those guys, right? And as long and short of it, he dies. And I figure the right thing to do as a neighbor would be to go over to his house and, uh, you know, wish his wife well during the shiva. And we're sitting there and talking. I said, tell me a little bit about your husband. I'm so sorry for your loss. And she told me that during the war in 1948 in Israel that he smuggled guns from Czechoslovakia into Israel. And I'm sitting there thinking, fucking A. Imagine who my neighbor was. Yeah, and you never knew until he right? died. And you never know until they die. So when I'm sitting there doing a podcast, and I'm going on for an hour and 30, an hour and 40 minutes, and this gems of stuff come out of people, you're thinking, wow, yeah. what lies inside so, us? Sometimes right? sometimes I, I, I'm obviously a, a, a lot younger and, and maybe more naive than you, and, and sometimes I make the, the, the rookie journalist mistake of making a judgment about somebody when I'm interviewing them and like thinking I know how this interview is going to go, especially in the Canadian Jewish news. I hate to admit this, but like sometimes we write stories that tread over very similar territory yes. and you just kind of assume, you know, what a story is going to be like, what a person's going to be like. And, and I uh, admit I've had those sort of those moments where I thought, Oh wait, that's, that's actually interesting. And then I sort of remember, of course, like this is a, a human being who's lived a life and I just kind of, you think about it as a job and you kind of forget. Yeah, you check out a little bit. You're just like, I know what the story's going to be. I know the quotes I'm looking for. Yeah. And like, you're not looking to be surprised because, you know, that's more work. But then, of course, you are. And it's delightful that like there's this whole other story. And you're like, wow, this could actually be a really interesting article. I wish I had more room to write about it. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes people, when they're responding, have a certain message they want to get across and a certain wall as well. And they, I, I, I can't even recall the number of times somebody says, Oh, this isn't very interesting, is it? And and I'm like, no, that's actually the most interesting thing yeah. you've said. That's what you want to get. Yeah, we just get into yeah. like predictive ruts, kind of where we um, expect what people are going to say. But I I did want to ask a bit more about why you transitioned into podcasting because the way you described it, Avram, is that you wanted to uh, uh, not come home exhausted at the end of each day, that sort of stuff. Uh, but it also does seem, and correct me if I'm wrong here. With the rise of streaming and technology, podcasting is very much on the upswing. Radio, I don't know if it's taken as big of a hit as television has, but I can't imagine it's growing. Uh, was was that on your mind too when you made the switch? Were you thinking I should jump ship onto this rising tide? There's a there's a component of podcasting where you know you don't have to get out of your pajamas. So I do my show from my dining room table, and I have to make sure to clear it off when I'm finished so that I can serve my son dinner. Uh, there's something very uh, quaint about that. There's something very warm about that. I've, I, I did think fleetingly about approaching CFRB or 640 or one of the major radio show stations and seeing if I could secure a job there. Look, they still have enough of a listenership. They still have advertising, but you're right. It is on the downtrend. Um, but Again, I'm 59 years old, been there, done that. The idea of going back to that and having a program director tell you what to say, when to say it, and how to say it, that's not very palatable to me. I want to run my own ship. You know, that's what happens to you as you get older. Um, and and uh, when did you start it at radio? When did this start? A year out? ago. Yeah, I just did ago. my birthday show. I reviewed each and every uh, show that I've done to date, 40 shows. Yeah, did you listen back to all of them? Well, what I did was I grouped them into uh, shows of five. So I would review the first five, and then I would pull one out that I had a certain feeling for, and I would talk a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, so I didn't listen to each show in its entirety, but what I would do is I would just take snippets of it. You guys ever do that with your podcast? You're, you're, you're at home at night, and I'm sure you're impressed with your own work, right? And you just have a listen to what you... Oh, what, I, I'm scared of listening. Are you? Do this. you like yeah. your voice? Because you have a terrific voice. I've gotten used to it. I mean, I've heard it enough things over the years. I, you know, I think most people are kind of jarred by their own voice the first time they hear it. I'm not anymore, but more just... Uh, the I only like listening to myself. I actually, <laughs> I actually mute the rest of you when I'm listening back to this podcast. Yeah, and, and we're grateful for that too. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's an existential should. thing, by the way. I'm convinced that people don't like listening to their own voice because it's almost like a mirror. It puts you in front of yourself way too close. Yeah, and that scares us. Three years ago, or almost four years ago now, I was in a show at school. And it just finally went up on YouTube. I don't know why it took so long. And then I started watching it. it, it what was weird was um, it was The Spelling Bee, by the way, if any of my friends are listening or anyone who knows the show. I was Ponch. He's the guy who reads the words. And cool. watching it, I was just seeing like some of the stuff. You know, In theory, I'm acting, but I could still see parts of it that were me yeah. that wasn't acting. But like, you know, I was talking fast. And maybe people think the character is supposed to be talking fast. But I was like, oh, I just was going faster than I meant to because I – talk fast when I get nervous and right. stuff like that. That part was, was very odd to see like the parts where I was trying to be acting and the parts that I can just tell was me shining through. But that's also how you get better, right? Like, Oh, for sure. You, yeah. you watch back on those things and you look for those ticks. Yeah. What did you find out about your own show and growth as a podcaster? Well, firstly, I, I become more articulate. I was actually thinking about that this morning. It's very interesting what our skill is. Our skill is putting words together and doing it cogently. And at the, by the same token, listening to what the guest is saying and in your mind finding a space to think about, okay, where am I going to go now? So there's a lot of things happening at once. And I find that I've developed that. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good listener in general, although my son might argue that sometimes. Mm. And I, uh, I love words and I love to put together interesting sentences and ideas, you know, that are punchy, that are articulated well with an oomph at the end of it, you know? So I've definitely grown in that way. I also find, and I don't know if you guys feel this way, I, I find that I have these fantastic people coming into my house. And I grew up on that because my father was a rabbi in Kitchener, my mother being a rabbitson. And we had Shlomo Karlbach in our house. I remember waking up one morning there. He was on our couch. Myra Kahani from the Jewish Defense League. Uh, we had marriages in our home. We had circumcisions. Like, there was a lot of stuff going on. It was small-town rabbi, so everything kind of points to you, right? And I like that, and that's in my blood. So, as I said, I, did, I interviewed Giddy Mammon the other day, fascinating human being, Stephen Pakin from TVO. Wow, what a wonderful, wonderful guest he was. And there they are, opening up to you, talking to you about their lives. And if you're really, really lucky, at the end of it, they'll say, you know, Avram, I've never had an interview like this before. And you go, yeah, right on, dude. That's exactly right. <laughs> so how, for someone like Steve Pakin as an example, yeah, do you have a prior relationship with him? Yeah. Or do you just, you do? So, so a lot of this does seem to be uh, your, your network, your history in your life, and you're kind of you're bringing that into the podcast. Right. Is that Cor fair to say? Correct. So a lot of people say, well, the most difficult piece here must be finding guests. No, that's not hard. I mean, I started via Hafta in 1996. And prior to that, I was at the United Jewish Appeal for seven years. The beauty of our community is that it's kind of small and malleable. Uh, if you're a staff member at UJ, you're hobnobbing with the Larry Tannenbaums of the world, mm -hmm. right? 
So if you see Larry at a hockey game, Larry, how you doing? Hey, Avram, great to see you, right? And Larry, I'm just wondering, would you do my podcast? And he would say no because he doesn't do interviews. Mm -hmm. But I have a very big network of people whom I know. The only thing that worries me is that as I get older, what's going to happen is that people are going to go, Avram who? <laughs> right? So I have to really capitalize on that now, my network, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, uh, I'm sure we could chat for many, many hours longer, but we're going to uh, move on to our next subject. Real quick, I'll mention the show is called Hat Radio. Um, wh where, where can people find it? What's the URL? You can Google Hat Radio. It's H-A-T-R-A-D-I-O. It's one word. Or a URL can, they can put in? Hatradio.ca. Hatradio.ca. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, we'll have links to all this stuff. I'm also going to find that, that article about the Vietnamese yeah. blind uh, man. Not blind man. <laughs> blinds guy. Blinds guy. Uh, uh, okay, Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Is that in bad taste? Oh, and he was like a, like a teenager in his 20s. He blinded a Vietnamese guy. He blinded? He yeah. Well, how did he do that? I don't know. He like... Oh shit! You're kidding. No, like in the United States. Yeah, by no, mistake. Just, no, on purpose. Yeah. Whoa. I like Mark Man, Wahlberg. You just brought less. down this uh, yeah. podcast. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Way to ruin this outro. I got a great murder story. I can. You know. I mean, I think it was more on Mark Wahlberg than me. Um, <laughs> the show is called Hat Radio. Hatradio.ca. We'll have links to everything we chatted about at the CJN uh, CJNews.com. Sunday is the start of Holocaust Education Week. Uh, we at the CJN have been writing a lot about it. I am interviewing artists. Alex, you also interviewed uh, someone kind of interesting, someone you wouldn't expect necessarily if you didn't know better to be involved in Holocaust Education Week. Who? Yeah, I interviewed Rainer Hess, who was the grandson of Rudolf Hess, who, for those of you who don't know, was the commandant of Auschwitz. Mm. So so why, why is a, the grandchild of Nazis involved in Holocaust Education Week? So Rainer growing up um didn't know that much about his grandfather his father you know taught the family that they had to like respect him they, they he didn't know all the details he didn't know about the camps he didn't know who his grandfather was or what he had done um and he was hanged in the nuremberg trials 20 years before rainer was born so rainer found out when he was about 15 um i'm sorry just so i know 15 is like what what year was that approximately uh that would have been i guess around Late 70s, okay. 1980. He was born in the mid-60s. I was just reading. Apparently, what happened was he was at a boarding school, and the gardener there was a survivor and noticed his last name and was just uh, – he, like, kept him for extra work and berated him. and was, it was, you know, quite mean to him, and he had no idea why. And a teacher took him aside and said, it's because your grandfather was one of the lead perpetrators of the genocide against this man, Oy. basically. Um, what a story. Yeah, so he found out. He found out from his teacher at boarding school? That's what the article uh, that I read said, yeah. Um, I didn't ask him too much about that part because, you know, I wanted to get into what he'd be talking about. So sure. now he goes around uh, the world, especially in Germany where he still lives, but also around the world. And he, I guess, advocates for justice. He's anti-fascist, anti-racist. He, he fights against intolerance. So he's going to be talking about kind of his family's legacy and why he feels like it's his duty to, to stand up against the things that his family used to stand for. What did he have to do internally to get past, I'm assuming, some incredible guilt? I don't want to speak to it too much for him. You know, we again, I only yeah. went into some... I mean, I did ask him what he thought about his grandfather. What did he say? And he's just like, honestly, if I can speak honestly, I'm, I'm really pissed at him. 
That's what, what he, he said. said. He's pissed at yeah. him. Yeah. That seems like a light response, I got to say. No, it, it doesn't, though. No, but it doesn't. I know. I hear you because that was my first response. But remember something. Not only was he responsible for genocide, but he was his grandfather. But you he never met were, the man. doesn't matter. You have a relationship with even your grandfather who was passed on. Even if you haven't met him, he was your grandfather. You know, but your father can beat the crap out of you. Strangely enough, kids still love their dads who are abusive. Strangely yeah, enough, but if 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 your dad beat you, Michael, and I asked how you felt. You might not say I'm pissed at him. Not what if, he not also said he'd spit on his grave. Okay, that's, is, that's is that, does that is that, that what aligns you're for? that aligns more with my worldview. <laughs> I spit on Henry Ford's uh, front lawn in Detroit. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, what for the protocols of the elders of Zion? <laughs> well, no, well, he was just a the general My buddy yeah, was giving yeah, me a tour of Detroit, and we pull up to Henry Ford's house. And I go, "Oh, Henry Ford, look at this!" And then I reminded myself, "Oh he, yeah, he, he hates he, us." Card carrying, and I go, Puh, and we drove away. I said, yeah. "Fuck you." <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, Rainier feels the same way, but it's about his grandfather. It's and, his and, grandfather, and he talks about like how it is a burden, and you know, people might say, "Oh, you know, you think it's a burden for you? It's a burden for us Jews, the ones who were." But it's, it is a burden for him, too, and he has to deal with it. You know, it's he was born into the legacy just like, you know, Jewish descendants of Holocaust survivors were. It's, even though it was on the other side, it's something that affects him. He, he distanced himself from his family. Um, you know, it's, a lot of his family hates him. So um, Wait, sorry. They hate him as in they're not on board with the anti-fascist cause? Yeah, or the fact that they're, like, denigrating, um, you know, his grandfather's memory. Like, his father and his grandmother, so his grandmother being Rudolf Hess's wife, um, you know, they were still like in favor of their father and husband. And, and he said that uh, his grandmother, when she died, you know, she was still friends with all the Nazis, like Ernst Sundel, apparently. She still was friends with them. And that she's buried under her maiden name in a Jewish cemetery in Washington. Mm. And he's trying to get her exhumed because mm. she doesn't belong there. That's what he said. Weird. And he wrote a book. It is weird, isn't yeah. it? The whole thing's weird. Yeah. Waking up one morning, you find out who your grandfather is responsible for the death of millions of people yeah oh my god and he said he wrote a book trying to uh, correct the record because hess i guess wrote memoirs and he kind of used the trials to paint a different picture of himself yeah. than the truth and he's like you know not only like did he do all these things but he lied about it all i can't trust anything about him so he's he's gone and got access to the archives did you have any feeling yourself about you know one degree of separation from hess how um, did you how did you feel Alex is a pretty stone cold dude. Stone cold, <laughs> stone, stone cold, cold professional. Because it would freak me out a bit. I, it, it just seems so far removed. And like I, you were asking me before, um, I said I'd seen him in The Accountant of Auschwitz, which is um, the movie that Matthew Schoik had directed, my old camp counselor, about a ninety-four year old man, Oscar Groening, who was put on trial for being the accountant at Auschwitz. And you know, I'd seen Rainer Hess in this movie, so I was familiar with him, and I had kind of thought through. Um, my feelings towards him back then so I, I still remembered him and I knew that you know I didn't want to hold him accountable yeah. for his grandfather's crimes I just wanted to judge him as the man he is now so that shock had kind of passed by the time I was interviewing him yeah. uh, you, you were saying before as well that there something that, that surprises me is that there's not a, a unanimous agreement that Nazis are bad and it's okay to be anti-fascist um, and so something you're mentioning is that like, n or, or even not all Jews are on board with this guy. And, and we were saying something to that effect, right? Yeah. Like, like Jews although, don't want to necessarily accept him or trust him or, or can you sort of elaborate on that? So there are a couple different, um, ways that people criticize him. Some, I mean, some survivors have really embraced him 
Um, there was one in the, in the movie Eva Core who adopted him unofficially as her grandson back in 2013. There are other ones. Ben Lesser is another one who's gone and you know talked about the Holocaust with him in Germany. But when we saw the film um, at the Hot Dogs Festival, um, I guess it would have been about a year ago, Max Eisen, who's a local Toronto area Holocaust survivor. And he, activist. Yeah, and activist. And he's very active in the, in the community. You know, he's doing all kinds of Holocaust education. And I know like he, he couldn't forgive um, Rainer for what his grandfather had done. He said that, uh, and, and I asked Rainer about that. How do you feel that people judge you? You know, and he's like, of course they judge me. <laughs> I can't expect Holocaust survivors to forgive Germany and forgive me when they were the ones who went through that. I think the words he used, he said it would be a mess if I told them what to think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but there are also people who call him an opportunist. And he took much more offense to that because he's like, it's not easy what I do. No, I don't have to speak out about this. It, it takes a toll on me. He's like, there are people from all sides, people in my own family who hate me because of what I do and what I say. Um, and I, I just thought, like, even if he was an opportunist, which I don't believe he is, I think we should judge his work based on, like, its own merit, whatever his motives are. I mean, if we think the work he's doing is valuable, that the motives should be secondary. And I do think the work he is doing is valuable. I also think, I, th- I think it's incumbent upon the Jewish people uh, to be open to the idea that, that change happens, that there are people who really are our friends. You guys, uh, there's a great piece in the CJN this week about the um, the fellow who runs the Lancet Medical Journal, how he was what seemed to be an ardent anti-Semite, anti-Jew, anti-Israel, or perhaps just anti-Israel, however you want to define that. And today he's the opposite of that. Was that, did you see that online? Yeah, I saw it online. Yeah, I, I yeah. wrote that one. Oh, that was a really good piece. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and, and, and I wrote in my description on Facebook was, I think what we take out of this article is that people can change, that a good argument can sway people. Now, in the case of Hess's grandson, I really think that as Jews, we have to be open to the idea that this guy's suffering, man. But it's not, I, to your point, it's not even that he changed because he yeah, was never right. a Nazi to begin with. Right, right. Which is an even greater reason to, to listen to him and believe him. I mean, I, and then fair enough. I mean, far be it from me to, you know, I'm, I'm the young, arrogant, whatever guy, mm-hmm. but like, if, if a Holocaust survivor isn't going to, isn't going to like anybody even within a 2000 kilometer radius of like Nazi Germany fine like uh, of course i understand that but but from where i'm sitting dude's work seems totally kosher you know i tell you the truth i, I i'm i'm completely forgiving of holocaust survivors and their positions on things oh absolutely yeah. right i spoke once at habonim and i said it was incumbent upon us this was 1994 to embrace the people of the balkans there was a terrible war going on there and a survivor came up to me afterwards and started yelling at me, a chutzpah, do you have any idea how the Serbs were us t- towards us d- during the war? And I apologized to him. I said, I'm so sorry, I wasn't talking to you. So when it comes to survivors, I just, they suffered so much. Yeah, of course. You know of I mean? course. They have their point of view, fine. I'm good. Yeah, no, I agree. I would never, yeah. Yeah. it would be a mess if we told them how to it would respond be to, to horrible yeah. trauma. They were the ones who went through it. Yeah, who However, are we, they right? have to live with it. That's what okay. yeah, Rainer said as well. However, they have to live with it. Maybe it's trying to forgive. Maybe it's never forgiving. That's their burden to carry, and it's not for us to judge. But I do want to tell a story about when I went on the March of the Living. We were in Warsaw, and a chaperone, uh, it was one of the first days there, she just kind of asked a question. We were doing kind of question and answer with the survivors, and she said, Don't you just look around and hate? everyone walking by you on the streets knowing that their ancestors were anti-semitic and it was actually one of the survivors who said 
That's absurd. Yeah. I mean, you. It wasn't them who did this. It was it was their grandparents, but they weren't even born yet. How can you hold them accountable? How can you hate everyone that you're walking by? I mean, that would probably be a pretty horrible experience to just be consumed no, but by Al- Al- Alex, tell me something. Have you not been in a situation where you're sitting in a restaurant or a bar or what have you, and someone points out, oh, yeah, that's my buddy's grandfather. He's German. He's 89 years old. The first thought that comes to mind is what? Where were you during the war? That is the first thought. Yeah, I don't know if I've met any old Germans. To that be circumstance has absolutely never happened to me. Yeah. Well, okay. You guys are boys. You guys are younger. It's yeah. happened to me and it's happened to my contemporaries. Oh, and for I sure. guarantee you, most of them were thinking, hey, where were you during the war? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Right. Just to zoom out a little bit, it is uh, nice that people like like the grandchild Hess can come and and their actual there there is actual holocaust education still mm-hmm. still happening that makes holocaust education week uh, a, a valuable uh, and and useful annual event yeah. um there are there are a few other events going on avram you were saying before just to to quickly touch on this do you have some opinions about holocaust education week you want to chat about that a little yeah holocaust education week used to be somewhat upset with me <laughs> But a, a lot, a lot of people were and are. I mean, because upset with Europe, upset with Holocaust no, education. No, they were upset with me because <laughs> I was vocal about the fact that all of the programming was directed to re- remembering, and and of course there's a value to remembering. Of course there is. But my thing was, what are we taking out of never again? Is that just a phrase? Is that something we conjured up to you know, sort of package? our memories and say, yeah, you know, if an injustice ever happens to us or somebody else, that we're going to be in the forefront of fighting it. And my my argument basically was that what we need to do at some point, and quite frankly, they have done this, okay, so this is more in the past, is to take the memories of the Holocaust and build in a lesson and build an activism so that any child or any young person who's gone to March the Living or who has you know, studied the Holocaust, seen the movies, heard the lectures, can jump up or should jump up and say, oh my God, take a look at what is happening today in Somalia, in, in Syria, around the world, starvation in so many different countries, kids suffering from vitamin A deficiencies, what have you, and say, that is the lesson that I'm taking out of my people's experience. That terrible things happen to us. So often we say, where was the rest of the world when? And we can't be like that. We have to say, you know what, I'm going to take on an issue in my life, and that's what I'm taking away from Holocaust education. But like I said, they have changed. They have adjusted. And I would say that's more in sync with what I think is correct. How, how have they adjusted it? In what way is Holocaust education Week now more activist than it was a decade ago? Well, when you take a look at their lineup, at the programming, uh, um, a lot of it has to do with uh, uh, other nations and their genocides. Like I remember there was a program where they brought on a Rwandan survivor with a Holocaust survivor. Now, that's a fascinating piece to bring two people together who have suffered similarly, albeit in different parts of the world at different times in history. Did you see it? No, I, I didn't, actually. But I have spoken to Ra- Rwandan survivors and work with them, so I've had the benefit of that. Mm-hmm. But I think that it behooves us to do such things. So I kudos to Holocaust Education Week because they really have evolved beautifully, I'd say. It does remind me of something. Uh, a number of years ago when I was living in South Korea, the first uh, Jewish museum 
that opened either outside of Seoul or in Korea at all. And it happened to be in the city I was living in, which is Busan, which is the second biggest city in South Korea. And it was started by a 50, 60 something uh, Jewish man who was married to a Korean woman and who was kind of swam in ambassador circles and stuff. And, yeah. and uh, somebody asked him to open up this, uh, this, this Jewish place and, and incorporate Judaica. And they had uh, a little Holocaust memorial section. <clears throat> Bear in mind that this is in South Korea and South Koreans don't have much familiarity with Jews. There aren't many there. I heard a lot of them like studying the Talmud now though. Uh, have we talked about that on I this think, podcast? We so, have. Yeah. Okay. I love that. But the bottom line is, in order to drive the point home, when, when they had all the information about the Holocaust, they also had all the information about how South Koreans suffered under Japanese occupation during World War II. It, 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 was, it was more like a, a, what was happening to Jews and Koreans during the, the early 1940s. And it was a way of, of conveying the... Uh, the, the the torture and the pain that both groups went through to, to help Koreans understand the Jewish plight a little bit more. Um, so just speaking to what you're saying about, about expanding beyond Holocaust education being strictly about Jews, I agree. And I think that through, through shared pain in, in a geopolitical sense, through looking at it in that lens, it can be it can be more effective. And I think there are other people in various parts of the world who are taking note of that. Yeah, and I think it's extraordinarily important that we as a people understand there might be something unique about the Holocaust, and I think most scholars would argue that there there was or there is. But the fact of the matter is pain is pain is pain. You know, when you're in Hanoi and your family is being bombed, and at the end of that bombing, you know, 27 of your cousins are gone. That's an experience that we had. That's an experience that they have. And we're all suffering that, you know what I mean? And we have to recognize that and we have to uh, embrace and respect it. Alex, uh, when can people see Rainer Hess uh, here in Toronto? So he's going to be speaking at the opening night of Holocaust Education Week, which is November 3rd, this Sunday. Uh, so now it's time for the final f segment of our show, which is... Did Jews need to worry about Shmini Atzeret and the federal election falling on the same day? I remember when we had this podcast, we had a podcast asking that question. And I, I don't even remember what the answer was. I think the answer was kind of yes, kind of no. It was kind of a, an, an, a, a, a tricky situation, kind of an insult to Jews. Yeah, I but, remember my answer at the end, which was that it's not necessarily a right to vote in the election on a certain day, but it is a right to have a reasonably accessible voting option. So we were, wait, I was waiting to see at least if Elections Canada would make more accessible voting options. Did they? So yeah, they did. They added additional service points in like uh, synagogues and other Jewish community centers, schools, um, nursing homes, things like that. And people were able to vote at the returning offices for the ridings. Um, like, you know, during the lead up to the election, not just on the advanced polling days, because a lot of those coincided with holidays as well, which was also an issue. We should mention right now, Alex, uh, you wrote an article about this for the Canadian Jewish News. It's in the paper this week. It'll be online probably by the time people hear my voice right now. Um, so I will just ask, this is kind of the big question. Did Jews need to worry about it? Did voter turnout in the Jewish community drop? So preliminary results seem like no. Elections nope. Canada was still validating their kind of turnout results when I was writing the article, but the preliminary results made it seem like, um, and also just the anecdotal evidence from the politicians I spoke to, 
um, Jewish politicians in, in ridings with large Jewish populations that the Jewish turnout was um, held steady from the last election, at least. So I'm more concerned with why Zach Hyman played hockey on Yom Kippur yeah. last year. <laughs> you know, I saw him at the game. My son and I were, uh, we had great seats, bar mitzvah gift, and we were right behind Mike Babcock. Anyways, we're walking through the NHL players' parking lot, and we see Zach, right? And I, we don't know him, but we know he's Jewish, and that's exciting to all of us, right? And sure. I love your sports stuff, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, listen uh, to Menchformers, anyone who doesn't. Yeah, Jews I, in sports, I think sister it, podcast. Yeah, it's terrific. Anyways, he, so my son and I were, were there, and I'm thinking, what do you ask Zach Hyman? And so I said, so did you go to shul on on, uh, on Yotif? And he stops, and he looks at me, he goes, nah. He goes, but I should have. <laughs> you know? Was that this year or last year? No, just a few days ago. Oh, so he was hurt. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no he could have gone. That's yeah. what that was his point. But just to talk about the issue where we were speaking about a moment ago, I just think it was an affront to the Orthodox community. I think yeah. I know my sister was involved in fighting this thing, and she was really uh, hot about it. She was really, really super bothered about the whole thing. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's not like a, a huge amount of people who are being denied a voting opportunity on the day of election, and there are many opportunities otherwise like if the zoriastrians were denied a similar thing would they be up in arms i don't think so that's a big theme that came up during our episode that was more about me that's it was numerous people we had an intern who went out on the streets yeah. he chatted with i don't know half a dozen dozen people and said what do you think about this issue and most people referenced this phrase it opens up a can of worms most people said if we start saying this we're gonna have to say it for muslims as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um Right, we're gonna have to respect all the the relig- like. Where where do you draw the line? Does it have to be a certain number of adherents to a religion, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Um, and so the easiest thing is is to just say, sorry, we'll try to make accommodations around it, but we're not gonna move the election, which is ultimately what they did. I went out on the advanced polling day to see if people on the Sunday, um, the day before Thanksgiving, because that was like one of the few times in the advanced polling period that wasn't a holiday, either Shabbat or the beginning of Sukkot. In other words, one of the only days Orthodox Jews could actually vote this yeah. year. Outside of the um, kind of other options that were created for them. And a few people actually said, you know, if it was a Muslim holiday, I bet they'd move it because they're more sensitive. Uh, someone actually said, you know, with our, yeah, right. you know, with our white privilege, people don't take our issues as seriously. Other people said, and, you know, Orthodox people, um, Maybe not necessarily Orthodox, but still observant. I spoke to different people, others who just were going to be out of town. Um, and, you know, there wasn't really any correlation between how Orthodox you were, how observant you were, and, and your opinion. You know, there was a guy with Kipa and Payas, and, and he said, I don't care, I'm voting today. You know, he was a young kid, maybe like a, a teenager, early 20s. Like, my parents told me to vote, I'm voting. It well, was, what it was pretty Michael, easy. What was Michael Levitt's take on it, do you know? Uh, yeah, he was very much against it he wrote a letter back in the spring first alerting people to it and then when the elections candidate officer did not ask the cabinet to move the election date he wrote another one saying well at the very least we need more accommodations and he said he's going to try to work to make sure that this doesn't happen again yeah right right. i remember reading that i don't know how he's going to do that this has happened already in two provincial elections in the last five years like and it happened apparently 2008 was sukkot also Anthony Housefather, who's the yeah. Liberal MP from Montreal, he, like, said, he said that when I interviewed him. For whatever unfortunate reason, we just have a lot of elections in the fall, and we have a lot of Jewish holidays in the fall, <laughs> yeah. and they're going to overlap. And, like, just live with it, Jews. <laughs> yeah, live with it, <laughs> Jews. That's right. I think that's honestly the takeaway. Like, as long as there are reasonable accommodations made, which sounds like there were, there were poll- there was a lineup for the polls, he said. I don't know if they had to wait an incredibly long time because it was log jammed at all. Did it Not seem- that I saw. 
So it, it was, you know, they had staff uh, adequately. I'll uh, say there supplied. was uh, one good point that I heard. Someone said, you know, the thing about having to vote earlier is that the conservatives just released their platform two days ago, and it's been Shabbat since, and we haven't been able to see the response to it, and that's relevant because he said, uh, this guy was a dentist, he said for the provincial election, um, NDP released their platform, and they had something about dentistry, and that caused like the other parties to change their platform, and you know that could affect the way he votes. Mm -hmm. So I will say, sorry, again, just play like the, the cynic in this, in this conversation, but like most people know who they're voting for, months in advance it's, there there is a contingent of maybe people who could swing between conservative and liberal but especially given the outcomes which we saw in these jewish writings overwhelmingly they were voted in liberal every writing in canada where there is a, a, a larger than average jewish population in other words five percent of the of the writing population is jewish or greater all but one of them thornhill being the conservative holdout all of them swung liberal or not swung liberal but held liberal yeah because they were all liberal before yeah right. And they right. and in many cases, like in in the one uh, was it Eglinton Lawrence? Yeah. Or, uh, where, where that's where Khani Aryeh is. Yeah, she was the Orthodox yeah. woman. I mean, she lost by eleven thousand votes. Yeah. Um, I know in in Montreal, Daniel Torgman. Am I, yeah. If I'm pronouncing he had about twenty five percent. Anthony House's father had over fifty. That's a lot. So, I I I I, I know this is a, a a bad argument for a journalist to make, but like, does do do our votes matter? <laughs> like, does any of this really matter? I know a few people would change their votes and it makes them feel like, oh, if I had been able to read this platform or hear the response, to that platform. but like when you look at the overall tens of like, you know, five digit differences in a lot of these writings. I think it is important for people to feel that way, though, that they. Yes, it is important for people to feel <laughs> like their vote matters. I agree. <laughs> From, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I definitely think it's incredibly important that we vote. And I do. I think, agree that I, it's I, important that we all vote. Yeah. And that I think means that none of them, that our votes matter that much less when we all do it. Well, I mean, it depends how you break it down. I mean, at the end of the day, obviously, the argument against that is you have a thousand people in the room, you know, and each and every one of them voted. That can start swaying things. You know, one vote can change things dramatically sometimes, mm. or ten votes, or fifteen votes. So yeah, I don't think that's a great argument. <laughs> That's fair. Let me let me be more specific then. In these particular writings, it didn't make a difference. That's that's what I mean. Okay. This uh, time around in this uh, argument. The bottom it didn't line make a count. Difference. And this was supposed to be a tight swing election, right? right? Like people were thinking, this is gonna be really tight. And and overall across Canada it was. But in in terms of writing to writing, it was not. Yeah, listen, again, at the end of the day, I I, I think that Orthodox Jews were offended by the government. Uh, thinking we're an entity here, we're an important entity. How could you possibly miss that? Mm -hmm. And I think your point was well, well taken before. There's a limited amount of days when we can hold elections, and our Jewish holidays are ubiquitous. I mean, they go on and on. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure someone probably took uh, the point of view of let's try to change it and then realize we can't. I mean, uh, generally this country is very sensitive to our needs, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't work in this case. I can live with that. Yeah, and especially because, as as we said, the data suggests there was still ample enough accommodations made before, and the, and the voting numbers didn't actually drop to any significant degree. Mm -hmm. So did Jews need to worry about it? No, they did not. Worry about Zach Hyman. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> <laughs> That is your episode of the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. Thanks again to Avram for coming in today. Thank you. Avram, do you want to give a quick plug for yourself? Yeah, have a listen to Hat Radio. 
That's uh, one word, H-A-T-R-A-D-I-O. You can find it at hatradio.ca. You can Google it. We're out there. And uh, let me know what you think. Wonderful. Uh, as always, you can find us, the CJN Podcast Network, on Facebook. If you don't already subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, please give us a subscribe. Uh, leave us a comment. Write to me. You can find us on Twitter at the CJN Podcast Network. I love hearing what people have to say. You can find me personally on Twitter at M. Framen. Alex, can they find you? You can find me at Alex M. Rose if you just want to see me reply to tweets about basketball. This episode was produced and edited by myself. Our intro music is by Vanya Juk. Our outro music is by Lache Swing. David Collin is the head of our in-house demolition derby. We'll be back in two weeks with more Canadian Jewish schmoozing. Thanks for listening. 